Hi, my name is Michelle, and we are here at Sagebrush today asking people one simple question. Let's take a look. If you found out you only had seven days left to live, what would you do? Oh, um, that's a hard one. I'd like travel. What would you do? I would gather all my friends and family and go on a nice vacation together. I would probably buy a bunch of dogs. Um, I would move to Belize. What would you do? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's a hard question. Probably spend a lot of time with family. Cherish every day. Live for God, love. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a hard one. Go spend time with my kids. Spend more time with family. I will spend a lot of time with my family and read the Bible with them. I'd pray more and I'd fast more and I'd get on my knees and I'd tell everybody I love them. I would spend a ton of time with family and I would uh, spend a ton of time studying heaven. If I had seven days, I think I would just try to share Jesus with as many people as possible. What would you do? I just lost my husband, so that's a really good one. Make sure that I know where I'm going. Thank you so much. Can I give you a hug? If you found out you only had seven days left to live, what would you do? Wow. Uh, I'd probably go around and say a lot of sorries to a lot of people. And uh, probably try to make the most of those seven days, spending time with my family, trying to tell them things that I want them to remember. <laughs> Pretty emotional. That's beautiful. Well, Thank you so much. So let me pose the same question that the video posed to the poor people out in the foyer when we got them and they didn't know what to say. If you only had seven days left to live, what would you do? How would you spend that time? There was a guy who was bit by a dog and he went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, you've got rabies. Guy immediately grabbed a piece of paper and a pen, started jotting some things down. Doctor said, there's no reason to do that. There's no reason to write out a will that we can cure rabies. And the guy said, I'm not writing out a will. I'm writing down the people I want to bite, you know. So <laughs> is, is that the way it would be for you if you only had seven days left to live? You'd pick up on all the people that you wanted to pay back? I, I, don't, I don't think that you would do that. I, I think that you would think about, who do I need to apologize to? And who could I love a little bit more? And how do I want to spend my time? And, and who do I want to invest my life in for those last seven days? Maybe they would remember something of significance that might help them along the way. Well, this is the position that Jesus finds himself in. There's just seven days until Jesus is going to be crucified for the sins of all mankind. So where does he go? What does he do? What does he say? What are some of the final words that Jesus wanted to make certain that we understood so that we could live a life that would be pleasing in his sight? So let's go all the way back to the Friday before the Friday that Jesus is crucified. What in the world is Jesus doing the weekend before the Friday where he dies for the sins of all mankind? Well, he's at Lazarus's place. Uh, Mary and Martha have sent a note to him. He has now shown up. We talked about this last week. He has now gone to the tomb. They've moved the stone away, and he has just raised Lazarus back from the dead again. And Lazarus has been dead, if you remember, for four days. Well, guess what? 
Word about this hits the streets and it spreads like a wildfire. I mean, people are talking about the power of Jesus. My goodness, he can already heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame. He can already cast out evil spirits. And now he's raising people back to life again after they've been dead for four days. Listen to me, friends. The people in the first century were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone who had power looking for someone who could lead a revolt against the Roman government and against the Roman authorities. They were looking for someone who could finally set them free. But Jesus did not come to be a political leader. Jesus did not come to take on the Roman government or the Roman authorities. Jesus came to set up a kingdom that would never end. Well, let's go two days later. So Friday, he raises Lazarus from the dead. What's he do the Sunday before he goes and dies for the sins of all mankind? Well, you know what he does. It's Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday is the day when Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And there was great significance for Jesus coming in riding on a donkey. There was a prophecy 500 years earlier by a man named Zechariah who said that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. This is what it says, Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, to the people of Israel, see your king, the anointed one, the Messiah comes to you gently and riding on a donkey. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus knows the prophecy. He's fulfilling the prophecy from 500 years ago. What's he doing? He's proclaiming that he is the Messiah. Problem is, he's not the Messiah that they want. But he's desperately the Messiah that they need. So Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. And what's the backdrop for the Palm Sunday for for this particular Holy Week? It is the Passover, isn't it? Jesus comes riding in on a donkey as they prepare for the Passover. If you've ever read the Old Testament, if you've ever seen the movie with Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments, you know a little bit about the Passover, right? Moses is sent back to Egypt and he is told to, 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 to tell the Pharaoh to let God's people go. And so the Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelite slaves go. They've been in slavery for 400 years. And so God sends a series of plagues upon the Egyptian people. Plague after plague after plague. And the last plague was the plague of the death angel. Every firstborn would die on this night. And there wouldn't be a family that wouldn't be affected. Now, just play along with me in the room. You can play along at home if you want, but I just think it's going to be a little bit weird if you do, all right? So play along with me in the room. How many of you would have died? You're the firstborn son in your family. Stand up. I want to to get a, a physical representation. Just stand up. Holy cannoli. That's a lot of people. Okay, we're not going to clap for you. Just sit down, okay? (laughs) All I ask you to do is stand up. That's not reason to clap, you know? It's kind of like when you go to a place and they want a tip. You know what I'm saying? It's just not worth it, you know? I I filled up my yogurt myself. Okay, anyway. um, (laughs) You've been there, right? Okay, it makes sense. Every family would be affected, wouldn't they? Did you you see the number of of men and young men that stood up? Someone's going to lose their dad. Someone's going to lose their son. Someone's going to lose their brother. Someone's going to lose an uncle on this night. Well, God made a provision, didn't he? 
He said, when the death angel comes, here's what you do. You take a lamb, and you sacrifice the lamb, and you pour the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of the home. And when the death angel comes, the death angel will pass over that home and will not enter into that home, and that person will live. The blood of the lamb causes the death angel to pass over. Now, here's what's significant. It's the Sunday, right? This is called Lamb Selection Sunday. On this particular day, what's everybody doing? They're choosing their lamb. The lamb that's going to be sacrificed later that week. That lamb that they're going to sacrifice at the temple will forgive them of their sins for one year. But they have to sacrifice another lamb. Because the people keep on sinning. Do you understand the symbolism what's taking place here? Jesus comes in on Lamb Selection Sunday. Why? He is the ultimate Lamb of God. He is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, then the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood of Jesus, covers the doorframe of our heart. And when the death angel comes to take you away, he will pass over you and you will enter into eternal life. Do you understand the symbolism of what's taking place? Now, when Jesus rides in on this donkey, everybody knows what's going on. They know that he's proclaiming that he's the Messiah, but they all think he's going to be a military leader. And so they run out on the streets, and they're throwing their coats down, and they're waving palm branches. Why? Why are they waving palm branches? You got a little bit of history Years earlier, there was a guy named Judas the Maccabean who led a revolt against the Greeks. And for a brief amount of time, the people of Israel were free. And the symbol of that revolution, the symbol of that revolt was palm branches, palm leaves. In fact, they, they inscribed palm leaves, palm branches, on the coins that they were allowed to make for a brief amount of time. So you understand what's going on here? They see Jesus coming in, riding on a donkey. They know that he's the Messiah. They think he's the military leader that's going to take on the Romans. They grab palm branches, the symbol of the last revolt, the last rebellion, and they start waving their palm branches. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're saying, come on, Jesus. Come on. Just say the word. Just say the word and the revolution will begin, Jesus. We've waited our whole lives for this moment. It's time to push aside the occupation. Time to get rid of the Romans once and for all. Jesus, will die for you. We'll do anything for you. It's interesting. The people are celebrating. They're waving their palm branches. And my goodness, the Pharisees know what's going on. They demand the disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, well, if they be quiet, then the rocks will cry out. Oh, and the Roman officials know exactly what's going on. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's anticipating the speech. And what's Jesus doing? The Bible says when he's riding into Jerusalem, Jesus is weeping. Luke 19, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Why is Jesus weeping while everybody else is celebrating? He knows they're all going to turn their backs on him. He knows that in just five days they're going to line the streets, but they're not going to wave palm branches. No, they're going to scream, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let me ask you a question. How do you envision God when you reject him? 
when you're disobedient to him, when you go the opposite direction of the way that you know that you should go? What, what, what do you sense that God's going to do to you? Boy, for a long, long time, I thought God was going to hammer me. God was going to slam me. I remember times when I was in college and I wasn't living for the Lord and there were storms outside and I thought, I ain't going outside because that's a perfect shot for a lightning bolt right to the forehead. And I would deserve it. You know, that's the way it was because that's, that's the way I saw him. Vengeful, angry. I just think he weeps over us. I think he looks at the choices and the decisions that we make and he knows what the consequence for those things are going to be and I just think he weeps. He, he weeps over how that affair is going to destroy your marriage and your family and your kids. I think he just weeps. He weeps over that addiction that's going to control you until you put it under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. I, I think he weeps over that pornography issue that you've got because it just consumes your mind 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can't seem to get free from it. I, I think he weeps over your greed. Because you just can't get enough. You're never satisfied. You always believe it's the next purchase, the next acquisition, the next thing, right? I think he weeps over our gossiping. I think he weeps when we lie to somebody else because he knows that that relationship is going to be destroyed and that you're losing all of your integrity. I, I think he weeps over the poor choices that we make because it leads us to places that we never wanted to go. Here's what's interesting. All Jesus has to do is start a little speech. That's it. Start a little speech and the revolution begins. But Jesus doesn't do that. Oh, he gets off his donkey and he walks away from the crowd. And I'm certain that the crowd had to be thinking, what was that all about? Maybe he's not who we thought that he was. That's what Jesus did on the Sunday before he dies. What's he do on Monday? He goes to the temple. John chapter 2 says, In the temple area, he, Jesus, saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. You imagine the scene, right? So Jesus is entering into the temple and he sees everything that's going on and he's upset by it. Why is he upset? Well, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, let me refresh your memory. Remember, you had to pay a temple tax. And they only took kosher money. So your money had to be exchanged from foreign currency to temple currency. And they would obviously do this for you in the temple for an exorbitant fee. And then you would bring lambs or cattle for different types of sacrifices throughout the year. And so the priest would examine the, 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 the sacrifice that you were going to make. And if the sacrifice was good enough, if it was no blemishes, if it was perfect in every way, then they would sacrifice the animal that you brought. But very few animals were, you were up to snuff. The priest would say, oh, there's something wrong with this animal. There's something wrong here. There's, you don't want to offer this. You need to buy one from the temple flock. And they would sell those at an exorbitant rate. Remember William Barclay said that the temple during this time made over $5 million a year. And this is $5 million a year back in the first century. That's a lot of money. Remember the Sadducees had, 
collaborated with the Roman authorities. This is how they made their money. This is how they got their power and their position. This is how they got their wealth. And this is how they funded the Roman occupation as well. So Jesus saw all this. And guess what? He wasn't happy about it. So what's he do? He begins to braid a whip. And then I want you to see that Jesus got really angry. And I want you to see that Jesus did not sin in his anger. He's very calculated, isn't he? He goes over to where the money changers are. He overturns the tables. The money runs down the steps. And what do the money changers do? They do what any person would do. They go chasing after the money. Didn't put his hand on any of them, did he? Then he went over where the cattle and the sheep were, and he hit them with the whip, and out the way they went, and the people who were attending to them chased after them as well. And then he looked over at the people who had the doves in the cage, and he said, get those out of here. He didn't run over and smash it to hurt a dove. He didn't run over and punch somebody. He's in complete control, and I want you to see that no one came against him. No one tried to stop him. He said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves when it should be a house of prayer. What's his point? The point I've been trying to make for the last three years. The house of God and the message of Jesus Christ should never be politicized. Nor should it ever be commercialized. It just shouldn't be. Because when those things happen, the message of Jesus Christ is compromised. And sometimes it can be put on the back burner as if that's not what we're here for in the first place. And so Jesus makes a whip. And then he makes a point. That's what he did on Monday. What did he do on Tuesday? He teaches all day long. From early in the morning until the sun went down. And it's interesting that what Jesus teaches on this day is he teaches about his return. And we're going to talk about this in just a couple of more weeks. We're going to start a series called The End. And we're going to look at end time prophecy. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of 2 Thessalonians looking at the Antichrist. Who is that? What's going to take place? All those types of things. Invite a friend or two to hell. They'll get the hell scared out of them. So just care. bring them. It'll be a lot of fun, okay? It should be a good time. So he talks about a lot about his return on his last day of public teaching. So what's he want to emphasize? I'm going away. But I'm going to come back again. And so Jesus tells a parable. And it's one of the most famous parables of all. It's about a master who goes away on a journey. Here's how Jesus told it. Matthew 25 says, Again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So in the story, the master obviously represents Jesus, and he's going away on a trip, and so he gathers his followers together, three, and he entrusts to them certain amounts of the master's money. So one he gives five talents, one he gives two talents, one he gives one talent. Now a talent, best I can tell, I've I've looked at, there's a lot of different ideas about it, but best I can tell, a talent was the equivalent of 15 years worth of wages. 
So the guy with five talents, he's got like you know, 75 years worth of wages. I mean, this is the chance. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. And the guy with two talents has got 30 years worth of wages. And the guy with one talent has got 15 years worth of wages. They all have an enormous uh, a resource that has been entrusted to them. And what's the master say? He says, listen, I'm going away. And while I'm gone, I want you to invest it. I want you to make a difference with it. I want you to multiply it. And then when I come back again, we'll settle our accounts. So go have the time of your life. And two of the three did, didn't they? Oh, my goodness, the guy with the five talents, the guy with the two talents, they got busy after it. They started working for the kingdom of God. They were doing everything that they could. And I bet they were having a blast, don't you think? They were leveraging their time. They were leveraging their talent. They were leveraging their financial resources. All for the glory of their master. Because when the master returned, they just wanted to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. So I think they're having a lot of fun. So one day the master returns. And he settles accounts. And the man with five talents made five more. And he says, Well done. And the guy with two talents made two more. Well done. The third guy walks in. Master says, what did you do with it? This is the chance of a lifetime. He said, well, I buried it. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't invest it really, to be honest with you. I knew you were a hard man, so I just got, here's here's your talent back again. And the master's upset in the story, isn't it? I got a question for you. When he returns, or when you die and you stand before him on the judgment day, is there a return you're going to give him for what he's invested in you? What have you done with your life? What, What have you made of yourself? With a little bit of time and a little bit of talent and a little bit of resources, how did you leverage those things, multiply those things? How did you build up the kingdom of God? Or are you like the last guy who went and he buried it? And you used your time for what you wanted to do, and you used your talent just to make a paycheck, and you used your resources to buy everything that you wanted to buy with no thought to the mere fact that your life and your gifts and your time and your talent were all given by him for him and he made an investment in you and he expects a return on his investment. Will you be embarrassed on that day? Or will you be able to say, I did this for you, I accomplished this for you, I leveraged this for you because you mean more to me than anything else. Did you notice the master gets angry here at the servant who didn't do anything with it? Look at what he says here. He says, you wicked, lazy servant. Calls him wicked. Because wasting your life is wickedness. And he calls him lazy. He said, you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put the money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant 
outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The final teaching that Jesus gives on this day is the day of judgment. He says the day of judgment will be a day as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then Jesus gets done teaching. That's it. Scares the spit out of everybody on the last day. Trying to sober us up. To live for things that matter. To live for things that last. To leverage your life for something bigger than what's here today. And gone tomorrow. With the warning. That one day. The master will return. And he'll settle his accounts. That's what he did on Tuesday. What was he doing on Wednesday? Wednesday's a very interesting day because we don't know what he did. Some scholars think that maybe Jesus went to a solitary place where he prayed all day long. That would make sense because of what was happening. You know, the next few days was going to be very difficult for Jesus. And Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows that nine-inch nails are going to go in his hands and his feet. It just makes sense that Jesus would just want to get alone. Others say he was making preparations for the Passover meal that was going to happen on Thursday. So he was busy doing that, sending his disciples over here and over there to get what was done. We really don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us what Jesus did on Wednesday. We don't know what Jesus did, but you ready for this? We know what Judas did. So Judas went down to the chief priest and the Pharisees and he said, What will you give me to betray him? What will you give me to hand him over? Judas is looking to make a deal, and they say, well, hey, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver, and Judas says, done. So Judas is plotting the arrest of Jesus. Judas is out planning to have Jesus executed, to have Jesus killed. Now, here's the question we got to ask ourselves, why? I mean, he's been following Jesus for three, three and a half years. Why all of a sudden does he want Jesus to die? You ready for this? Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he hoped for. In Judas's mind, you ready? He hitched his wagon to the wrong Messiah. You see, he was perplexed and he was confused by Jesus. He, it didn't make any sense to him. I mean, people would come and, and they would say, we want to make you our king. And then Jesus would just walk away. He, he wouldn't allow them to make... And that's what Judas was there for. He was for power. He was for position. He couldn't understand why he wasn't more upset about Roman occupation. Why it was every time people came around and said, hey, I want you to be the king, he'd just walk away and go out to a solitary place and pray. He couldn't understand why Jesus spent so much time with sinners. Why are you hanging around with these people, these tax collectors, these prostitutes? They have no power. They have no influence. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back was Palm Sunday, don't you? I mean, the people were fired up. They were ready to make Jesus the king. This is the moment the disciples have been waiting all along for. And then Jesus just gets off his donkey and walks away. And then on Monday, oh my goodness, Monday, Jesus goes in and upsets everybody in the temple. He upsets the Sadducees, which upsets the Roman officials, which means that now the power and position of the Sadducees, that's going to be for Judas. He's going to be on the outside looking in. And he realizes if I want a place of power, if I want a place of position, then Jesus has to go. And so he gets it ready. He sets Jesus up. You see, Judas had an agenda for Jesus. And as long as Jesus did what Judas thought he should do, everything was great. 
But when Jesus didn't do what he thought he should do, all bets were off. You've got to ask yourself a question, same question I ask myself often. Is there any Judas in you? Is there any Judas in me? See, I, I think a lot of people, uh, they have motives for why they follow Jesus. And as long as Jesus does what Jesus is supposed to do, and that sounds silly, we'll follow him. We'll serve him. We'll even show up to church. We'll tune in at home. As long as he answers our prayers the way we want them to be answered, right? Some of you are single. As long as he brings you a smoking hot guy or a smoking hot girl, right? And you look around right now, you're like, there's some potential in this room right now, right? So you say, okay, Jesus, let's make it happen right now. But if that smoking hot guy, smoking hot girl doesn't come when you think they should, all of a sudden your faith in God begins to waver just a little bit, right? We just expect certain things that Jesus needs to come through for. We want a good job. We want, we want a job that's going to have higher pay scale, right? We want to have good promotions. And if we don't get them, whoa, Jesus, what's going on? I've seen people through the years of my ministry that have walked away from Jesus because someone in their family died. It might have been a tragedy. They prayed for their son or their daughter or their mom or their dad, their grandma or their grandpa to be healed. And Jesus took them home, where ultimate healing is at. So their prayer was answered, but not in the way that they hoped for. And you know what they do? Stop reading their Bible. They stop praying. They barely make it to church anymore because you know what? They rubbed the Aladdin's lamp, and the genie didn't pop out and do exactly what they told the genie to do. And so they walked away. Let me ask you a question. Does God exist for you or do you exist for him? Because a lot of people live their life as if God exists for them. You know when you finally have surrendered your life over to Jesus? You know when you really have done it? It's when you come to him with no other agenda other than the agenda of serving him any way he sees fit. Of going wherever he wants you to go, doing whatever he wants you to do, enduring whatever he has for you to endure, trusting him in ways you never thought you could, being faithful to him when everybody else would walk away. It's that defiant faith that we talk about. It's getting to the point where Jesus might not answer your prayer the way that you want it to be answered, but he's still going to answer it in what is good. To bring glory to him and for your good, even though you don't understand it today. It's no matter what kind of faith, no matter what comes my way, no matter what the prognosis is, no matter how many times I find myself on this dead-end road, I'm going to hold on to the one who will never let go of me, no matter what. Those are the people in the Bible that we look up to. Those are the people in the Bible that we admire. The people with defiant faith. People like Job. Job in one day lost everything he ever had. He lost his livelihood. He lost his children. And this was his conclusion. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. No matter what. Joseph had a defiant faith in God. He gave him a dream. God gave him a dream that one day he'd be a great ruler. 
Well, his brother sell him into slavery. Then he's accused of a crime he didn't commit. He languishes for 13 years. And then in one moment, he becomes that great leader, second in charge of all of Egypt. There's a famine in the land. Joseph's responsible for making certain that there's enough food during the famine. And who comes looking for the food but the brothers who sold him? And look at Joseph's perspective when he sees his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a defiant faith as well. King Nebuchadnezzar built a statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and said, everyone has to bow down. But these three men refused. Nebuchadnezzar finds out about it. Oh, he's so mad. He gives them one more chance. One more chance. This was their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Whether or not our God comes through for us the way we want him to come through for us or not, we're not bowing down. We're holding on with every fiber of our being to the one who will never let go of us. No matter what. This world can take just about everything away from you, can't it? But it can't take away the fact that if you've asked Jesus Christ to be the leader and forgiver of your life, that you are a child of God. You are a prince. You are not a pauper. You are a princess. You are worthy because he's made you worthy. You were bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He can't take away the fact that he gives us courage, that we are more than conquerors because of him. And he can't take away the fact that we're going to heaven. Friends, this is not our home, and aren't you glad? I'm going to a place where there is no more sickness, there is no more suffering, there is no more death, and there is no more pain. For my God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has made everything new again. So whether he does it the way I want him to do it, whether he answers my prayer the way I want my prayers to be answered, no matter what, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, give us that defiant faith that no matter what comes our way, no matter how many disappointments we have, that we would find our hope in you, that we'd always have a reason to praise you. We'd always have a reason to be thankful. My goodness, you've been better to us than any of us deserve. We are all sinners. We all deserve death and hell. We don't deserve one good thing, and yet you've blessed us over and over again. You've come through for us over and over again. God, may we not be so wishy-washy that the moment when things don't turn out the way that we hoped that they would, that that would be the time that we'd be like Judas, that we would betray you, that we would sell you out. God, may we be faithful no matter what might come our way. You told us that in this world we would face trouble, but to take heart because you've overcome the world. So help us to put on the full armor of God so we may take our stand against the devil's schemes. May we fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And may we give you all the praise and all the glory forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.